Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey guys, welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. I am back and I'm with Mark. So how's it going, Mark? Good, as always. Yeah, I've been missing for two episodes. Nobody complained, so I guess I should just go right now. But if you're on the show notes of this podcast, you will find everything on authorityhacker.com slash bad dash tactics. And today we're going to basically be listing a bunch of tactics that we find people are still using today that they either changed or we don't recommend them anymore. So it's probably going to be useful if you're running a site already or if you're considering running something and you maybe shouldn't do some things that you're considering doing or are doing right now. So we'll discuss them and then I guess we'll each give our point of view on these. And you know what? I'll let you start with the first one. It's been quite controversial in the past few months. So it's going to be interesting to talk about this. And so what is it? So we're going to talk first about scholarship link building, which is at least last year in 2006 as well, it was quite popular. So basically what, what it is, is it's a sort of cheap way to get a lot of links from universities which historically have been difficult to acquire links and thought to pass a huge amount of link juice because of that. And the idea is that you create a scholarship page on your site and then reach out to universities to basically let them know that you have made this scholarship and you you want to give a student an amount of money to help them with their tuition. And the the basis for how you distribute that money is really up to you. I mean, typically scholarships, you, you have to apply for them and there's some kind of essay or test, but that's not really the point here. The point is you're paying a small amount of money. It could be a thousand, could be a few thousand dollars. And you reach out to the universities and they will link to your scholarship page from somewhere on their university website. So you very easily get a bunch of links, pass a lot of link juice. These are difficult to acquire links and, you know, that helps your SEO. It was a tactic which originated, I mean, I'm sure people have been doing this for a lot longer, but it became sort of more widespread, sort of like 2016, late 2016. And I've seen a lot of not just sort of like gray, black hat people do this, but a lot of uh, white hat people uh, do this as well. And so it sort of became most famous when there was a website called 10 Beasts, which was a PC review, like affiliate site, basically. It's not just PC review. It was like anything. It was just like a top 10 review site, basically. Oh, okay. Fair enough. They sold the site for, I forget, it was 400, 500,000 or something like that. And then 17 days later, the site got a manual penalty from Google for unnatural links. And this caused a bit of an uproar in the community, which was in a way quite nice because like a lot of people felt sorry for the buyer. But as I understand it, I think Matt Diggity interviewed the guy, Lookman, I think his name was. And they basically, I mean, he seems like a really nice guy and the buyer also seemed pretty sort of cool with it. And he kindly offered to help help the buyer out. And he said that he did some kind of link removal. So he basically analyzed all the bad links, reached out to a number of the universities, colleges, and asked them to remove the link. I don't know whether he said the scholarship's no longer available or just whatever he said, uh, but they removed the links or a number of them did at least. And he submitted a reconsideration request and they got unpenalized like quite quickly. I think it was like a number of days later rather than a number of months later. Yeah. You know, it's like I was talking to my deity at the time at which it happened. Like we were talking about this as they were doing it. And it's like, it started a massive debate between me and him where I was basically like, well, if Google unpenalize you so fast, what's the point of like even not doing great hat? Because they're like, essentially just giving you a free pass as long as you fix it. Maybe I'll bring Matt on the podcast and we'll do that debate actually together. But overall, yeah, I think it was like something like 48 hours or something and they got back. Yeah, and that's like I don't really want that to be the the takeaway from this. But no, but it was also a debate that started. You know? Yeah, but the the reality is that's what happened. Now, yeah. whether that's going to be the the case in in every situation, I don't know. I think why that may have been easier here versus some other kind of like shady link building is because it was kind of 
I, I imagine at least fairly easy to get these links re removed. I mean, if the scholarship's not there, the university probably want to, to remove them. So, but the question really is, does it still work? And would you do this on your site? So what do you think about that, Gil? I mean, first of all, they had to remove the links, right? So obviously I would probably not do that on my site. But the thing is like, you've got to look at the context of scholarship link building, who was doing it? And it was a lot of people with shady sites that really didn't have any other ways to get links. So it was a lot of like gambling sites, some adult sites. I know a guy that was running an escorts website and essentially got links from, from scholarships, which is quite incredible. The lack of regard of where universities were linking to provided anyone was willing to give them a thousand dollars to another student what was incredible to be honest. I think that some web masters are working up because like, I was talking to some of them on Twitter and it's like that they were telling us, well now now we start to understand what's going on. But before it was just some guy in his office and it was like, oh, sure, like I assume can get $1,000, whatever. And I'll link to it. But overall, because of the kind of people that were doing this, I think these pages became bad neighborhood on their own, you know. And I think that now that Google started cracking down just a little bit on it, you know what's going to happen? Everyone's going to be putting these pages on their disable file, giving these URLs to Google. And then if you have a link on these pages, it's not necessarily good news for your rankings. And overall, it, to me, it's like paying for links, which you know, really is against Google's terms of service. It's just kind of like an alternate way of doing it. But, you know, if you went to John Mueller and you were like, hey, is this paid links or not? I'm pretty sure he would say it's kind of incentivized and therefore it's probably not recommended. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely paid links in, in this case. It's just basically adding kind of one layer to in the middle to kind of obscure it in a little way and the person you're buying the link from isn't actually aware of it because of that so yeah i mean it would not stand up to scrutiny from google and or whoever in that case i would not do it i mean obviously i would say i mean without having actually done it or tested it it's hard to say but i would be surprised if it didn't still work in some way Maybe on some kind of level, because, you know, people still have to create scholarships and stuff. I'm just wondering, like, whether, it, you know, if a big site did it, if Amazon did it or something, whether that would actually help them or or, or, or hinder them. Yeah. And, and you know, there's going to be that whole debate as well about how much money is given, you know. So if Amazon gave, like, $20 million of scholarship, like the impact, you know what I mean? Like, the, the positive impact would almost feel like it's worth it whereas if, it, if people are giving five hundred dollars people would be like well that's just playing the system you know it's kind of like chipping it more and more and more but talking about whether it has an impact on seo i mean i know back in the day perrin actually did it for hip hop at the really beginning and the site already had some links and the truth is it didn't have a lot of impact on the rankings i've talked to a few people that did it it's like we're talking like two years ago or something that didn't get a ton of results but i feel like it's kind of like that that initial velocity that it can do. So a lot of people started with scholarship link building when they did link building when they started a new site. And as we know, when we start new sites, you know, the first 20, 30 links make a huge difference in ranking. And sometimes regardless of the type of links, et cetera. And then after that, you know, if you added these links to health ambition, I don't think they would do anything, to be honest. They're not that strong because the pages that you get a link from a university page, but first of all, the scholarship page doesn't have a ton of internal links usually inside the university site. So it doesn't carry a lot of the authority of the site. And second of all, it's linking out to hundreds and hundreds of domains, including really shitty gambling and porn ones, et cetera. So it's not necessarily like as strong as people think. It's just like EDU links have been a, an SEO fantasy for like 20 years now or something. <laughs> yeah, I think there is probably some truth to the fact that an EDU link is more valuable than a non-EDU link. But you know how much of that is just because it's an EDU and how much of that is because it's older sites, they, they're bigger sites, they're authorities in their own right. It's very hard to measure that. Even like, yeah, you can't really do an SEO test on that because getting EDU or domains or owning them is, is not really possible for the average Joe. So It makes no sense. I mean, like a link from the CERN would, should count as much as a link from an EDU site or even better than a, a shitty university. So I don't think the, the domain 
extension has anything to do with it. It's just that, well, EDU sites get links from governments and people link to them because they're taking a course there, etc. It's just they have more links. It's just like, it's the same algorithm. I don't believe Google has any line of code that says, oh, if EDU then add 50% link weight, you know? It's like domain age, you know? I don't think it's a real thing. I just think it's just because domain age equals more links over time, you know? I mean, obviously that's my personal vision. Anyone can contest it, I'm sure some people will. But it just doesn't make a lot of sense from an algorithmic perspective and doesn't make it very dynamic overall if you build it that way. So yeah, I guess that's scholarship link building. If we spend 10 minutes per tactic, by the way, we have 12, so it's going to be a two-hour podcast. So get some tea, get some food, let's go. <laughs> the next one, I'll let you talk about it as well because you already did. And that's going to be... Cool. Yeah, so content stuffing is... We've done this before for clients in our old agency Ooh. like five-ish years ago. It's particularly relevant to e-commerce, or it was particularly relevant to e-commerce sites who, let's say they had 500 pages that are uh, kind of generated maybe dynamically using product info or pulling data or um, descriptions from you know some kind of manufacturer's website. So they basically have a lot of pages which don't really have much unique content on them. Uh, a typical e-commerce product page also, you know, it's designed to convert and you, you want people to click that buy button. So adding in a thousand words of content in there is a little bit difficult because it tends to hurt that conversion. Oh, look at how Amazon does it, actually. Amazon does a good job at putting a lot of content on product pages. It's a bit tricky and it's not built out of the box on the Shopify or WooCommerce, but it, it tends to be yeah, more I mean, possible. There, there, are, there are ways, like at the Amazon comment, like comments or feedback uh, rating system is, uh, is you know particularly good in, in that sense. And of course, Amazon is going to be the best in the business at, at doing this just because they're Amazon. But you know, back in the day, it was quite common for people to add in like a text toggle, which is like a button or a, a little mini banner where you click it and then the text expands and then you can read like the description or an extended bit of information about what that product does. We used to do that for a number of clients actually. And, you know, we would have writers create content and, and put them in, in, in text toggles. And from time to time, it worked. You know, some of these pages would, would actually... Oh, it worked in general, Would, yeah. would actually rank. <laughs> Now, it doesn't work now. Would you still do that, Gail? I mean, the thing is, like, Google, back in the day, did not really crawl, like, JavaScript, Ajax, and all these technologies. So it was kind of like crawling, the con like, all the content on the page without really waiting it. But now I feel like the content behind tabs, behind, you know, these toggles that expand and so on, it's probably weighted a bit, a bit less and sometimes not even indexed at all. I was still doing the test on some reviews on health ambition that had toggles. And some of the text just wasn't getting indexed at all when it was behind toggles. So Google kind of like has a better vision of what the user sees now. I think it's like two and a half years, two years now that they do that. So when we were doing this, it was before that. But the thing is that now the way Google ranks pages is very much per, like there's page types that they like for different keywords. So for example, when you Google and like I'm doing renovation now, so I'm just going to go with the renovation keyword examples all the time. But if you Google like shower drain, most of the time you get e-commerce pages part of, even if they don't have a lot of content. But if you Google best shower drain, then you'll get the kind of like review sites and blogs, etc. So Google tends to associate types of pages with types of queries and kind of really segment that pretty hard lately. So if you have an e-commerce, just find the queries that are ranking e-commerce sites and optimize your pages for these keywords. It's quite important to identify which page type is ranking when you're trying to compete for a keyword because no matter how good your page is, if you're not matching the page type Google likes, usually you will not rank. And to the point where now, because a lot of the bigger keywords, so you can rank for best shower drain with a blog, but if you rank for, if you want to rank for shower drain, really I think you need an e-commerce type page, like kind of a category page in an e-commerce to the point where I now see affiliates essentially create WooCommerce affiliate shops. So there's a plugin on Code Canyon that I see a lot of people use called WooCommerce Amazon Affiliates. And I put the link in the show notes. And essentially what it does is it emulates an e-commerce, but then when you click on the buy button, it sends you to Amazon with an affiliate link. And this way people manage to rank for these e-commerce keywords. And at the same time, they have like a blog section where they rank for the best type keyword, which need more like blog post type stuff. So I think you don't need to like do this common stuff anymore. However, 
kind of like the new, I'm gonna say the new content stuffing, but it's not very a very good way of saying it. But essentially, it's matching the page type that Google wants to rank for that query and identifying that by just googling the query and see what ranks. Yeah, I mean the the days of kind of trying to trick Google in these things are, I think, long gone. They know what's up now. Basically, they can see what you're doing, and you know whether or not like they pay attention to that or like how much they count that is a different argument. But they know what you're doing is what I'm trying to say, basically. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that doing the the e-commerce affiliate it's, it's slightly tricky as well. It's not terrible, but it's um because you can make the buy buttons to put stuff directly in the cart on Amazon and people just go to the checkout, so it's not a terrible experience. I feel it's like a, a step up, but it's still like it does work right now, and and it's like if there was opportunities, I would probably do it, provided the experience is not so bad for the user. So let's see if that lasts. Though. Let's see. It's a big question mark. So the next one is keyword stuffing. Now, there's there's kind of two types of keyword stuffing. There's the old, old keyword stuffing, which was around way before even I got into SEO, talking like 10 years ago kind of thing. You know how it works, right? Like, I think the, the youngest people will not know how it worked. But basically, like, at the time where there was not even Google, there was like Lycos and everything, you would just write your page. And then at the bottom of the page, you'd like maybe skip like 20 lines. Then you would put the keywords you want to rank for, like, all in one line. So you'd put like dog training, dog training, dog training, dog training, dog training, dog training. And you put it like 100 times. And then search engines would only rank you based on keyword density. And you could just rank. Yeah, it was very rudimentary sort of algorithm back then and basically the more a keyword was in on your page the better and it wasn't much more complicated than that and so now obviously when if if the goal is to get your keyword in there as many times as possible or or just as many similar keywords as possible then that's going to sacrifice your user experience if you have it in a thousand of those keywords or whatever so a one way around that which a lot of people would do is they would have size four text or really, really small. And then they would make it white. So it was the same color as the background. So it was essentially hidden keywords just stuffed in there on the page. And there were variations of that using the metadata, meta keywords, that kind of stuff used to be a lot more important back in the day as well. So you know people would, would do that. And there's all sorts of issues with people like copying other people's keyword lists and stuff, which apparently was a big deal. But there's a kind of newer version of this as well, which is you know, taking a keyword and just like inserting it a bunch of times in a somewhat unnatural way into the article. So, you know, you'll be talking about, I don't know, the best shower drains. And then the first sentence will be something like, so you're looking to identify what the best shower drains are. Well, in this article, I will tell you about the best shower drains. And by the end of it, you will know what the best shower drains are for your usage. It just doesn't like read very well because someone's written the article and then someone else most likely has gone by and like stuffed that keyword in a bunch of times near the top in the hope of ranking. There were other examples of this where, and this, I still see some sites do this where they'll, they'll list out all the states or all the cities, which they, they serve, but in a way that's kind of like trying to add that essentially as a, as a keyword so they can rank locally for, for some of these terms. Does this still work? Well, I mean, the old, old keyword stuffing stuff, obviously not, probably not for about 10 years now. And with the new stuff, adding your keyword into your article, I I think it can work to an extent, but Google's just so good now at understanding whether your content is shit or not. Not to mention actual users will be like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And if you go too far with it, there's definitely some kind of over-optimization penalty that you can you can have if your keyword's in there. I think it was like six or ten percent of the the content is your your keyword. It can, it can that can occur. There was a test I, I read about that recently. I'll try and dig out the results for the the show notes. But yeah, that's definitely an issue. Would I do this now? Uh, no, not at all. I was gonna say I'm laughing now, you know, because actually I'm pretty sure that the Description of the podcast on iTunes is massively keyword stuff still because the algorithm on iTunes for search is so much less refined than it is on Google. And basically, like when you talk about, so what I did is I actually put the name of other similar shows like, you know, Pat Flynn and Niche Pursuits, et cetera, just so, so we can show up in the related podcasts. 
I wouldn't do this for Google, but I would do this for iTunes because like Google for uh, Apple for search is absolutely terrible. And it's still the way it works on kind of like sub search engines. Same with YouTube. Like you can literally keyword stuff, your tags, et cetera, and rank for things still. So this applies to Google, to lesser search engines like YouTube, Pinterest, iTunes, et cetera. Keyword stuffing definitely still applies. And I think if you check Autori Hiker on iTunes, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so no, it's like, don't do like, it on I'm Google, honest, but do it on iTunes. <laughs> I'm talking on this podcast like I would talk to you in the real life. And it's like, it's still a thing, but it's like, it's almost encouraged, you know, because actually the way I got this info for iTunes is by watching like podcast optimization courses, you know? And and people are like, yeah, just, just put your keywords in the description and see what you want to rank for and just put it as many times as you can. And, you know, that used to be SEO. And, you know, I have no doubt that at some point it's going to change and then maybe I should just go and rewrite the description, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a, there is a fine line between adding your keywords to your content and keyword stuffing. And there's a definite gray area there where... I think we crossed the line on the podcast, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I haven't read it, but it sounds like sounds like that for sure. Um, <laughs> I think it's like one, one of the best examples. So I think if you want an example of what keyword surfing looks like, go on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. I see we did there. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, I'm talking to people here like I talk in real life, no filter. But I mean, the thing is like we've also been reading quite a bit about keyword density lately. And as much as you say, like Google spots it, et cetera, like I've been reading about several tests that say that, you know, higher keyword density, probably it's not too crazy. Like one, even 1%, which we rarely reach on our content, tends to do better in search. Obviously, something that we won't replicate on our own tests before we kind of like make it a recommendation. But I've been reading a lot about keyword density being important as well. So as you say, there's a line between you know, high keyword density and keyword stuffing. And and I feel like sometimes we call Google smarter than it really is. And maybe these kind of things could help. And I don't want to say anything until we've tested it at a larger scale. I think we're, we're probably going to run more tests when the new health emission is out there. Yeah, I mean, there, like, as I said, there's value in adding your keywords to your, your content. If you're not adding your keywords, that is a bad thing. If you do it too aggressively, you can get to the point where you're over-optimized. So whatever process you have for adding this in needs to monitor the sort of percentages and, and not go above a defined amount. I forget what the results of that test I read exactly were, but it was a few percent. I think. Okay. All right, let's jump to the next one. Really, is going to be a two-hour podcast otherwise. So the next point is targeting only low competition keywords. And basically, with the growth of index, like uh, keyword difficulty that was originally a long-term pro-exclusive type metric, but eventually made its way to every single keyword tool, you know, Keyword Finder, I think Substat has it now, Ahrefs has it. Pretty much every decent keyword tool has some kind of keyword difficulty tool. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good at um, showing up what are the you know lowest competition keywords within a range or within the topic. And what people tend to do these days is mostly try to identify in the best ratio of search volume against keyword difficulty and just write for these keywords. The problem is that when you do this, you end up, let's say you pick a topic, let's go back to shower drains because we love that topic. And you'd find maybe two keywords in shower drains. You'd be like, you know, best shower drains for walking shower and best shower drains for tiny showers. Maybe that would be two keywords that you could rank for that have a good search volume and low keyword difficulty. But probably within that shower drain topic, there's probably like 20, 30, 40 things you could write about that have decent volume, decent interest, etc. And Google kind of likes websites that talk about a topic comprehensively. And historically, for our sites, we have seen overall better rankings when we had a lot of pages about a single topic. And when you only target the low keyword difficulty stuff, you kind of end up writing like two, three pages about a topic, then jumping to the next, then two, three topics about a topic, pages about a topic, and kind of like never really having big chunks of content about one thing. And that is essentially what we recommend. I'm going to say... I'm going to give my opinion now, then I'll let you talk, basically. And it does still work, and it's, it's you should be doing keyword research, and you should be targeting no commission keywords, definitely. But the, there's two things that are happening. One, everyone's doing it now, meaning that the low commission keywords you're looking at right now, they're the ones that change the most over the, the next six months. And by the time you rank, it's going to be a completely different landscape. And so it's kind of hard to predict what's going to happen. 
Second, we found that the sites that uh, treat topics like deeper, regardless of keyword difficulty, tend to do better in search overall for us. And third, I feel like it's now basically what we're doing is we're writing also for the high keyword difficulty keywords. So let's say maybe how to install a shower drain is a high difficulty keyword, high keyword difficulty, and most of the time you wouldn't have selected, we would still do it. But then we'll use that page usually for link building. So we'll do infographics, we'll do skyscraper, we'll do ego bait, like have some quotes from people and get links from them, that kind of stuff. And overall, we try to create a content cluster that has a mix of high and low competition keywords and then try to have a plan for each page so that they make sense within the business. So either they help us get links or they can, and sometimes you can rank for the big keywords or maybe the low conversion, we try to rank top three and then make money from these, et cetera. And I personally find it's a much more balanced way of building websites and it makes business sense as well. So what is your take on this? So for me, yeah, I would still do it, particularly if I was just starting out. I mean, not me personally, but if this was the first authority site I ever tried to build. And the reason for that is because what I see is the biggest single point of failure is people who don't believe that this can actually work, don't believe you can start a site, put some content and uh, build links to it and, and rank and make money from it. So they give up too soon. And if you're targeting extremely difficult keywords or even a mix of easy and difficult keywords, and you know, like 50% of the stuff just doesn't work because it's, it's too hard of a, a keyword, that's going to negatively affect your experience. And it's going to stop you from getting to that point where you, that aha moment where you're like, oh, shit, this actually works. I should do more of it. So that's why I think look, starting out, yes, it's, it's a great thing to do. But remember, the point of an authority site is that you can actually rank for some of these keywords eventually when your site grows. So, you know, feel free to to target a mix of keywords here, basically. Yeah, I think it's a mix. Like you want to have, you definitely want to have low commission keyword. It, it's more like trying to highlight people who only write like keyword difficulty one keyword, like for keyword difficulty one keywords, et cetera. I just feel the site becomes imbalanced as well. It's how to, to be seen as an authority as well when you write only about these really tiny niche topics and they're not really connected to each other. But let's jump on to the next one. And the next one is writing only long content. So basically, for a number of years, it's been observed by the SEO community that there is a positive correlation between long content and ranking high in Google. And I'm not here to contest that. It's probably true. I haven't run our own tests, so it's hard to tell. But from what I've read, it's definitely looking quite true. And looking at the lens of the personal authority hacker, I'm not going to fight it, you know. But it feels like content creation is becoming a race to world count. And when you have Google, on the other hand, that's like in what they call a mobile first world, they're actually calling it an AI first world now, but it was mobile first world until like a year and a half ago. It's not really great. Like you're in the bus, you only read about something and you click through and you have a 5,000 word article shrunk on your phone screen. Not exactly the best experience. And once again, long content does work and we have a lot of long content, but I don't feel like it's suitable for every query. And that's why I think the bias is writing long content for everything. There is a lot of queries that don't necessarily need long content. And I feel like I've been talking to people in very competitive markets lately that actually have found that their short content pages did better than their long content pages in terms of rankings for certain types of queries. And at the same way we talked about, you know, e-commerce pages for certain keywords and review pages for other keywords, it also feels like content length, it also varies per type of query. So it's highly recommended that before you actually pick a word count for your content, you actually Google it and you look at what's ranking and how much content there is. Because you often find like very short pages ranking for simple, you know, question type keywords, like can dogs eat strawberries or something like, you don't need 2000 words for this. Like it's just, can they eat it? Can they not eat it? What is dangerous for dogs in strawberries or what is good for them? Uh, in strawberries, I think it's like high vitamin C, so it's good for them. And that's basically it. And in like 500 words, you're done. You know, you don't need to write 2000 words about can a dog eat strawberry? So we actually use that in our current business right now. We have a category of content that we call support content. And it's content that you usually don't see on the blog feed, but, but does exist. And they, they essentially are shorter articles, kind of like similar to what we do, but shorter that works very well and targets like smaller keywords that don't need as much content. So for example, if you 
Go and Google real estate affiliate marketing. You'll see an example of one of those pages on Atari Hacker. You've never seen it on the blog, but hey, we're ranking for it because we made a short article for it. And keeping it outside of the blog, uh, I can't remember the name of the plugin we use, but we essentially have something that cuts it from the RSS feed and the blog feed. Kind of allows you to also publish a lot without necessarily flooding your, your blog feed. So it's kind of like good to do that. And I think it's a good it's good to mix both. Having long content for deep queries, yes. Having long content for simple queries, probably overkill. I think what you said, I think what you said uh, around looking at what your competition does is very important. So if you're targeting a specific keyword at the keyword research stage, certainly when you're doing it, Gail, you will always give and I never quite understood like how you derive this number but because every kind of we produce let's say for health ambition seem, there's one that would be like 2300 then the next one's 1700 then the next one's 1200 it seems a bit random but that's I presume at least the process you're <laughs> I'm just rolling dices you know so I got Dices, I just just put the number that comes out. Yeah, so I mean, if you're targeting a keyword like that, uh, if you're targeting a specific keyword, look at what your competitions do. And do you just pick like the highest one and then, you know, outdo them by a few hundred words? Okay, so usually what I do is I look at the top five and I find the lowest domain authority in the top five. And then I look at what they do. Because basically, if they manage to get there, it's like they had to try hard. And so then I try to be around the same word count as they have, what they have. Okay, that works. It's something else that's worth considering as well for these kind of like short answers that, that Google wants is the uh, position zero snippet. So it's still a bit of a shrouded in mystery over exactly how they pull this. But when you see that occurring for a keyword you're, you're, you're targeting, the general best practice is to try and replicate that or do something similar in terms of having a short snippet at the start of the article or some kind of bullet point list that they could potentially pull. So I think that can also address some of the, I guess, like mobile user experience requirement to have a quick answer to a simple question. But the, the other thing, the, the last thing I really want to say around this is around consider your cost. So if you're spending a decent amount, and we'll get that's actually the next next point about the cost of content. But if you're spending a lot on content, the difference between having all of your articles a thousand words and all of them five thousand words is a huge amount of money. So you really don't want to be writing too much more than you you absolutely have to if you have a sort of keyword centric approach to to this. And a good practical example of that is what Gail just said around checking competitors' content length. But also for us, when we're doing guest posts, say, they're way, way shorter than our, our average post. I think our average post length on health ambitions, something between 1,000 and 2,000, whereas our average guest post length is probably around uh, 700 or something, which is still, I think, a bit longer than than most, but there's definitely the reason for that is because we're considering a cost there. So always, always be aware of that. Yeah. You know, I see some new sites and like every page has like 6,000 words. And I'm like, wow, like you could really have like double, triple the amount of pages and probably rank just as well. It's like, I'm not saying that a 5,000 article is not going to rank. I'm just saying it's overkill for a lot of things. And it's like more words. At some point, there's a diminishing return, right? It doesn't really add up to a lot more rankings. Yeah, and this is more true for, let's say, a site like, a site like Health Ambition, where we have a very keyword-centric approach. We're just trying to like scoop up as much traffic as possible. On something like Authority Hacker, I mean, we still look at keywords when we're uh, deciding which content to create. But the gloves are kind of off a bit more on that. And, you know, in the past, we've done 10,000, 15,000 word articles just because there was a lot to talk about and we wanted it to be epic. So it's more of a, or the actual length is less of a consideration there, though it's still a factor. Yeah, I mean, it's also it's also a user engagement thing. Like user engagement on Atari Hacker is more worth our time than engagement on health admission overall, where people are just looking for a quick answer. So yeah, it's also why. Let's jump on to the next point, which is I don't think you should be spending a dollar per hundred words of content anymore. I think it's time to to end that. And essentially, it, the principle is, you know, hiring cheap writers or forums. I remember back in the day, I used to hire people on Wicked Fire to write articles, and it was around that price, around a dollar per thousand words uh, per hundred words. Sorry, I haven't ordered that for a long time, so maybe it has changed a little bit. But you can definitely find content around that price on 
Upwork, this price, that price, I don't know. Um, but usually it's mostly fluffy content that really, you know, people just Google stuff and basically write what they find. And, you know, starting a site around that, can it rank? Yes, I think it can still rank. And I've seen it still recently. So it can still happen. It can still rank. However, when you do that and like a user that's like passionate about the niche lens on your website and just sees that stuff, it's just like the likeliness of them converting. And we, I have like one or two sites with shitty content laying around and I see the conversion rate so much lower than sites where we invest more in content. And most importantly, when you buy a piece of content, it's not whether it works right now. Like when you buy a piece of content, your return investment is usually within between three months for the really good ones and two years for the not so good ones, right? So really what you care about is that at least for two years, this content can make you money. And gradually over time, there's less and less of these shit content sites ranking Google. And where are we going to be in two years? That's the question you need to ask when you order content today. So Google is actually weeding these out you know, over time. So your chances of success are actually lower. Therefore, your return investment, maybe it's not worth being cheaper here. Maybe it's worth spending a little bit more money. On top of that, users are a lot more educated. And because more people are going the extra mile into creating content, I mean, love that paintball example that we took for ages. But essentially, I actually, just before this podcast, I wanted to find some examples. And I, I redid like the best paintball gun query, you know, that I we talked about something like a year ago or something. And I, I don't know if I sparked uh, if I sparked interest when I talked about this, but it's a whole new host of sites ranking now. And the content is way better than it was like a year ago. And that's what's happening across a lot of like these niches. People are going the extra mile into creating this content. So when you have sh shit content, it basically is, stands out in a bad way. And it's not something that you want because people are not going to be converting. That's when we get people messaging us on the forums and they're like, ah, oh, but I only get 2% conversion on Amazon and so on. Well, usually that's because your content is shit. When it's good, you can get 10% possibly. And then if you can make five times more money, isn't it worth spend, spending five times more money on the content to actually have a higher chance of this happening probably so yeah i mean that's why i basically don't believe it's worth it to be too cheap on the content yeah i think a ra your ranking isn't worth shit unless you can maintain it so getting to number one for a week or a, a month you know awesome but you know what we really care about is the long-term effects of staying there for for years and if your approach is to just get any kind of content which is legible and quote unquote unique or SEO optimized as, as, as many writers will sell you on. Those are red flags right, right there for something that's going to be terrible, terrible content. So in general, in fact, I don't think we've had any such content on from these kind of writers for, for years. We're really quite anal about having uh, good content across all our sites, even the ones you guys don't know about. We put a lot of effort into to making sure it's good. And the reason for that is because other people are competitors. They put some effort in, but they don't put as much effort as we in, or at least most of them don't. And we believe that this is a really good long-term play. As you've as Gail said, you know, Google is getting better and better at understanding what's good, what's bad, what's true, what's not true. And therefore we feel that we're in a really good position for this long term. And so far it's been it's been the case. Yeah, I think it's also an opportunity, right? It's like sometimes you'll do some Googling and you'll find a lot of these like low quality content sites ranking. It's like, it's basically wide open. I mean, the case study site in TAS was essentially that. It's like, there were sites in this niche, but they were all really, really bad. And it's like, we've done all like very little promotion for this site and it's, it's ranking quite well. A little bit less in the last two weeks, but still quite good. And that's mostly because, well, it's like it's wide open. People have not put the effort into creating high quality sites in there. And honestly, like, yeah, it's we could even do better if we wanted, but it's it was a good example of that essentially. So if you're in task, just just check the whole industry where the case study site is. Let's jump on to the next one, because as I said, two hour podcast, people are finishing up their tea, so we need to hurry up. Let's talk about on page load pop-ups. And this one is a pretty recent change. Essentially, there's been two changes, right? There's been Let's first explain actually what uh, on-page road pop-ups are essentially. On-page road pop-ups, and we've been using them for ages on Atari Hacker. We've had people complain about them, but the truth is they work super well. They're essentially a pop-up with an offer that loads as soon as you load the page. So you load a blog post and boom, it's like 
join the webinar with Perrin, I think, on Authority Hacker, and you opt in, and then you get to the webinar, and then usually we try to sell something at the end of the webinar. So it was a great way for us to make money. And it's been one of my favorite ways of converting people from informational content to buyers and making money. However, with time passing, Google is slowly, quote unquote, nerfing them, like reducing their effectiveness. Historically, loading the pop-up on page load has been the highest conversion rate every time. Like, I think that's the first time I wrote about it was on the, the pop-up article in like 2014, 2015, a long time ago, 2015. 2014, there was no Tori Hacker. Highest conversion rate, but arguably the worst user experience for the majority of people. I don't care, I make money. But, no, I'm kidding. But things have changed and Google is slowly nerfing these things. So first of all, on mobile, these are actually now a negative ranking factor. So if you have on-page road pop-ups, you essentially will rank less on, on Google mobile's index. When that update rolled out, arguably it didn't do a lot, but on paper, it should do that, and they can always tune up the button. It could it could do that more. Second, they just released an update to Google Chrome that is aimed at targeting overly aggressive advertising and essentially build an, an ad blocker inside Google Chrome. And these pop-ups are also targeted in there on desktop. So far, we haven't really seen the effect of it because uh, the way it works is actually for 30 days, it does nothing. And I think it's it's almost 30 days since this update rolled out. And after that, it will start blocking these pop-ups altogether. So overall, we see that Google is taking the path of kind of like making these less effective and kind of forcing you out of using these, which kind of annoys me because I really like using them, even though they're not the best for the user, they work really well in terms of conversions. It's still acceptable to use these pop-ups as exit intent within the ads chart that Google is relying on to set their ad blocker. So you can just change the trigger of these pop-ups from on-page load to exit intent or to timed. You can also use other types of call to actions to change it. So you can use hello bars and you can use content upgrades. And I think we're gonna have to turn back to content upgrades a little bit more to essentially convert and make up for the loss of conversion rate from the page load pop-ups. And another thing that came up in the meantime as well was push notification opt-ins. Browser native, so it's like, you know, do you want to receive notifications from this site? You've probably seen it at this point. And this Google is completely fine with it. It's very good experience on mobile. It's perfect. So essentially, kind of the way to go now is to use the push notification on page load, use content upgrades, and use exit intent pop-ups. You can still make good money, it's still worth it, but on page load pop-ups will be on their way out. I've already changed it on Authority Hacker. I'm gonna change it on Health Ambition in the new version of the site. And it's something that you should slowly be weeding out as well, I think. So what do you think? I think one of the interesting things was when this was first announced, we presumed that it was going to be like, if you do it, you're dead to us kind of thing, (laughs) a kind of attitude from Google. But it appears to be much less the case. I don't know whether that's because a lot of people are kind of still doing it or, you know, it's just a less significant factor than we kind of presumed. Of course, my position is let's not do that if they don't want us to. I'm not trying to trick them or get around them, Google, in any way, shape, or form. I think that's a bad idea. And you know, maybe there's a, a opportunity here to say focus on actually converting these people better or driving up customer value or lifetime value or engagement more, which I don't think we've been the best at so far because it's, it was always easier just to increase your opt-in rate by 20% rather than increase your customer value by 20%. So maybe it's a prod in the right direction to actually do better marketing. Um, I mean, I think I think you can still convert at almost the same rates just if you're smart. Like, you know, you convert people into the push list, then you push opt-in pages, then you have content upgrades on every page, then you have exit intent pop-ups. Like, there's still ways to convert people just like, it's like it was the lazy way to do it with the... Um, the page load and just like one offer blanket it on the whole site it's like you could set it up up in like half an hour now you need to be a little bit more granular and almost run it like you know paid traffic on your website with like segments and different things and so on and if you do that it works better 
As a user, I'm very happy about this because I personally find them all really, really <laughs> annoying. Even even sometimes like when I'm working on health ambition or authority hacker, and it, it always comes off as like, oh God, this thing again. So from that perspective, I, I think it's good. Let's see what happens though. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump on the next one. And the next one is uh, is one that we touched a little bit about on a previous podcast, and that's stock photo personas. I think people who people might know what I'm talking about, but essentially, you know, we've talked a lot about personas. Essentially, you know, using a pen name for your website, and people tend to not use their personal photo as well. So they, they find a photo, they go on a stock photo site, they take the most obvious blonde girl photo or whatever, and that's it. They're Helen Sanders, you know. So we talked about this. We've used this on Health Ambition for a while. We tried to not pick the most obvious one. But at this point, and I think I think we're partly responsible for what's happening here. It's very obvious to a lot of marketers what's happening. And because of that, you're losing a lot of credibility when you're doing it. So what do you think? Yeah, so like the question is, does it still work? Uh, and the, the short answer is yes, because most users, so most people reading your site, are not really familiar. They don't even know what an affiliate link is. So unless you're in like the online marketing space or, or, or something like that, the, the average person is not really aware of what's going on. However, the average marketer absolutely is. I can spot these a mile away. And part of the reason is because of such terrible photos people are using. It's so obviously a stock photo. But it, just in general, they're all kind of quite similar in how they, they, they play out. But most marketers can spot this. And if you're trying to build links with that, then that's an issue. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt your ability to do that. As we mentioned in the podcast uh, a couple months ago, it's not something we would particularly recommend. The only reason we do it and we still do it for um, our new sites, at least, is because we get recognized way too much and there's a lot of people just waiting to copy whatever we do. So it's kind of a, a layer to insulate us against against that from happening. But if I was starting a new site right now and I was not, an, you know, had never done Authority Hacker or whatever, for sure I would use my own name and my, myself and not have any kind of persona at all, let alone a, a bad stock image. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's fine. Like, if I was doing it, I'd take like a family member's photo or something, like, like something real, you know? I think it's just the stock image feel that really gives it away. Otherwise, you could probably get away with it if you wanted to. We've discussed the pros and cons of using personas. Not going to get into that again. But yeah, it's I would avoid using stock photos for any kind of personas anymore. It's so much better for link building if you can be yourself because you can interact with people in so many other ways than just emailing them, asking them for guest posts or whatever. And that, that makes a big difference. All right. So given the fact that we're almost at a one hour mark for the podcast, I'm actually going to jump to the last point, Mark. And the last point is pushing social media and social media shares way too hard. And essentially, it's it's been a trend that I think it came with Mars and, and at the time where people were like, oh my God, social signal is so important for ranking, etc. Obviously, nowadays, it doesn't seem that important and not a lot of people are talking about it. And plenty of people are ranking without any kind of social shares. But that web design trend kind of started there where we would put social share buttons basically everywhere, like on top of the content, at the bottom of the content, on the sidebar, like sticky, like you can see on Atari Hacker a lot. And I've been guilty of doing this. But it's something that we talked quite a bit about when we did the health ambition redesign, right? And the question was like, how much money do you make from traffic that comes from shares from people that clicked on these buttons? And probably it's very, very, very little. It's kind of nice to have the social share buttons. I'm not saying you shouldn't have them, but putting them everywhere, probably a bad idea. And when you think about it, you can swap it for so many things. I mean, like, imagine if you swap this sticky bar on the left with like a click that opens a pop-up that essentially gets people into your email list or even an ad or even an, an offer or like a, something like this, you could actually make probably a lot more money than having share buttons there. So overall, my feeling for... Uh, and that's really a feeling in this one because there's, there's no data. But what I know is we don't make a lot of money from people who share our content. And so 
it's almost better to take it off, clean up your design, and all put different monetization there and not overly do this one. What do you think about this one? Yeah, I think it's quite hard to measure because your analytics, you just see something from Facebook. You don't see where. No, you do now. Okay. So if you use social share buttons, the plugin, is it social share buttons? You can actually add the UTM parameters when people click the share button. So you actually see it in analytics, you know? Okay, sweet. And that's very little. <laughs> okay, so I did not know that and haven't looked at that. But even so, if you look at our unhealth emissions, say our traffic from any of the social networks, Facebook, say, it tends to be a little every day. And then maybe twice in our history, there's been like a big day where there's 10,000 users come in or something like that. And I think that's generally indicative of the value of, of social media certainly from an organic perspective in general, is that most of the time it doesn't really do all that much. But when it does, it can really, really, really help. We've all seen these these posts that go viral and get you know tens of millions of views and stuff. And if you're able to do that, if you're able to capitalize on that, fantastic. It's quite difficult in many niches to actually uh, achieve that. I did a really interesting interview with Greg from Empire Flippers last year, where they actually went a little bit viral on Reddit. Uh, I think they got to the first page, actually, uh, and got quite a bit of traffic out of that. So if you want to learn how they did that, then it's a, it's a really interesting podcast there. But trying to manufacture virality is a very, very difficult thing. It's just not something we've been we've ever been particularly good at. So I don't think it's worth your time overall. Like I feel like SEO is so much more reliable, you know? Yeah, for sure. And so as you said, you know, it's a distraction from it's a distraction from whatever other action you're trying to get people to take, be that clicking on your ad or signing up to your email list or buying your product or or or, or something. You know, the best people or the people who really want to share this with someone, they're just going to copy the link and share it, or tell their friend about it or whatever. You know, that's that's fine. They don't need, you know, 400 social sharing buttons with stumble upon and whatever else people used to use four years ago to share. I remember my first blog, I, I had like two lines of these and there was like 24 different social sharing things. Now it's like Facebook, Twitter, anything else really? We have LinkedIn buffer pockets printing and emailing i think yeah printing's a funny one because like why would i ever print this but like a lot of older people like that tactile feel of, of printing an article that they, they, they want to read so it's worth having in you know on uh, on health ambition the number two most used social share button is the email one as well that's interesting actually i didn't know did not so people email it to each other that's why that's why we have it actually because I was checking the stats for a while and then I've just you know narrowed it down to the ones that people actually use. Okay, well, I guess we're going to wrap it up here. I hope Claire had a good walk. If you found the show notes for this podcast, they're on autoryhacker.com slash bad-tactics. And I will see you again next week. Thanks for joining in. If you liked it, subscribe so you get notified for the next podcast. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.